0: I'm R.S. Benedict, and this is Write Good, the podcast that helps you write good. With me today are Gareth and Langdon from the Death Sentence Podcast. Introduce yourselves, you guys. <laughs> Hello. Hi. Tell us a little bit about your podcast and who you are. Uh, okay, I'm Gareth, the British one.
1: I'm, I'm Gareth. That, that means I swear more, and also I own more guns than Gareth. He does
2: and uh okay so deaf sentence in a sentence is a podcast about mostly about books uh but also about death metal and also about politics
0: as a pretty good it combo kind of, uh,
2: yeah i mean it's not a good combo if you want like an audience because the <laughs> like ben diagram is basically just me and Langdon at the center and no one else, but um, it it seems to work.
0: (laughs) Well, currently you guys have more followers than we do. So evidently it's working.
2: (laughs) You'll eclipse us soon because people like want writing advice. That's like a a, a genre of thing like there's a write and vice thing in the bookstore there is not a mm-hmm. write and vice bus death metal
1: i spent multiple weeks telling people about a plastic toilet that you have to put candy cocaine into to make foam up out of out of the toilet which the bowl is shaped like the mouth of a man but it's a toilet it's... and you have to drink the cocaine foam with a coke straw i told people about this you're going to be fine <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs>
2: we've done everything possible to isolate and alienate our audience every <laughs> week we give people a new reason to just unsubscribe nice
1: they're very strong they're a very strong audience the i best think best. they listen at a fight to like defeat us
0: you're going for quality over quantity of listeners and i respect that <laughs> we want yeah.
1: them to be sharp like steel and dead and stupid like us <laughs> steel,
2: <sharp and> steel.
0: <laughs> all right well the reason that gareth and langdon are here today is to talk about reading in particular why you need to read books other than harry potter now in order to write good you have to read good that means reading a variety of works that challenge you in other words you have to read more than just harry fucking potter so let's talk a little bit about the harry potter phenomenon it's uh It's been a cliche,
2: you know, read other books every time some like centrist lib commentator compares Hillary Clinton to Hermione or whatever. But, um, and yeah, those people should read other books, especially since they're like commentators and writers themselves. But like even fiction writers need to massively expand the amount of books they read. I mean,
1: we we think about this sometimes with in what other field can not being abreast of the field in which you work be an acceptable practice. Like, we sometimes treat writing as though it isn't a, uh, a a craft or a job. It isn't a job that you sit down and have to dedicate time to every day like any other job. And when you start thinking of it in those terms, the the mere thought of like, I don't want to know about the field that I work in. It's like, well, you love not being employed, it sounds like. That just sounds like a good recipe to literally never have a job. It's like, I want to run a business, but I don't like numbers or money or business.
0: I'm going to start a restaurant, but the only food I like is tater tots. This is going to go really well. I don't know how to make them. I'm never going to visit other restaurants. I'm just going to eat tater tots on my own.
2: I'll get scurvy. <laughs> I'll die. But I'll at least have been be true to my vision of a 100% tater tot restaurant.
0: I will open a tater tots restaurant in a gentrified Brooklyn neighborhood and some columnist will write about it as an example of what's wrong with the millennial generation.
2: Eating only tater tots is equivalent to reading only Harry Potter or YA fantasy or YA dystopia.
0: Now, I want to stress that there's nothing inherently wrong with reading YA fantasy or necessarily enjoying the Harry Potter books. You guys are free to disagree. (laughs) <laughs>
2: yeah, that, the harry potter books are generally not great i don't think but YA fantasy and dystopias and so on are some of them are quite decent yeah
1: yeah if i've even tabled a uh this this is gonna sound weird because i'm not huge fans of the books myself but i i've tabled a defense of like the twilight books for being we may not like how honest they are but the notion that they are honest portrayal of a certain vector of uh feminized fantasy for itself and for its own sake without the predicate of uh of others there there is a value to that i don't have to personally like reading the book for me to acknowledge that there is a value for someone to have that yes it's like there's there's nothing wrong with the existence of these books it's just that even the most if you only eat kale you're not healthy that's not how that works
0: right right other books exist oh fruit's good
1: i'm only gonna (laughs) exactly like
0: Again it's like eating nothing but tater tots. It's other yeah. foods exist, you need variety. Other books exist, you you need variety and you might want to think of cultural intake as a diet. You you want variety and it's okay to have some chocolate, some indulgences, but you want to eat more than just tater tots and spaghettios. And as a writer, it's almost like you're kind of an athlete, so you got to
2: like exactly. You you as a writer, you're a power lifter you need you need all the stuff and you need lots of it because you're going to be burning a lot of that stuff in order to get the good ideas that you need to make good work
1: i mean the classic i mean obviously the cliche is that like the good artists borrow great artist steal that whole thing which is a, a gross oversimplification but the um a more material way to think of that is that any given great book you read isn't stealing from one or two authors. That's just theft. Um, right. But it's this syncretic motion of little bits of, like, a hundred books that yeah. the person's read. Like, oh, I like that inflection there. I like the way that they frame uh, the interaction of character and setting and how it from this thing. And I like, oh, this person's prose and, like, really speaks to me here. And, like... You can't do that if you have a limited palette. Like, it's even if you wind up making YA stuff and valuing YA stuff and wanting to create the best YA stuff you can. You can't do that if you only have... It's, again, to pick another maybe trite cliche is it's like trying to paint a really gorgeous portrait if you only have one color of paint.
0: It's like being Rob Liefeld, that awful comic book artist. Like the other comic book artists, yeah, they draw exaggerated human forms, but they studied art by figure drawing. They took the art classes. They they studied from life. Rob Liefeld is kind of notorious because he didn't take art classes doing figure drawing. He just learned to draw by looking at other comic books, and as a result, he draws these bizarre inhuman freaks. You might have seen this, that infamous drawing of his of Captain America, where he looks like he swallowed a refrigerator or something.
1: He has so many bones. <laughs> I I, I have a weird, ardent defense of my extra bone, man. Everybody has like 700 teeth. <laughs> uh, they love pouches. Rob Liefeld doesn't believe that there's uh, too much storage capacity that's not a thing he thinks is real
0: every woman's waist is smaller than her head and her spine seems to be made out of like a slinky it's really bizarre and and exaggerations in comic books are normal and fine and and look pretty cool but this is upsetting (laughs) it's not okay
1: he's an unfortunately brutal and almost necessary mirror for the kinds of subliminal lensing that we have within especially the sort of like childhood fantasy of superhero comics like he's almost incredibly useful because he takes those elements that are latent and blows them up to 11 so that we can't unsee them like you can look at a normal superhero movie and when someone goes like how come wonder woman's battle armor is so much skimpier than superman's battle armor?" When they're both as impervious to damage as the other and someone's like ah you're being a little bit weird here and then you look at rob liefeld and you're like oh, wait wait no no i wait i get it wait yeah oh i see it now yeah
2: it was only ever a power fantasy that was all it ever was so thanks rob liefeld well done for that
0: yeah rob liefeld is uh, we we salute you for your incredible contributions to our culture <laughs> Under
2: inexplicable time you were on a Nike advert. Don't know what I was about, but uh he was. He was on a Nike advertisement? Yeah. I think it was it was him or oh, no, sorry, I was thinking of Jim Lee. I always get too confused because they're roughly similar. Anyway, back back to uh back to books.
0: Good, back to books. So let's talk about books that aren't about boy wizards in a boarding school. So what should we read? Well, the first thing which sounds, I know, incredibly, incredibly basic is read some fucking fiction. Read fiction. It's kind of startling how many aspiring fiction writers don't read fiction. I've I've met a lot of aspiring fiction writers who fully admit they don't read. They don't read fiction, besides Harry Potter. Uh, a lot of them just stick with movies, TV, video games, and maybe comics. And again, there's nothing wrong with all that stuff. I love movies. I like. I love TV. I love video games. I, I'm indifferent to comics, but I'm not against them. Um, but if you're writing fiction, you need to read fiction. And the biggest reason for that is that movies, TV shows, comics, and video games are not written the same way as fiction.
2: So that's a. That's like a very uh, good point because most uh movies made nowadays are made to a very uh, standardized formula that came out of a book called save the cat uh, i'd recommend people pick this up and read it it's a terribly horribly written book but uh, it's really interesting to know to read it then understand exactly how every movie you see from something like avengers to i know like a uh, drive or um virtually anything even like art housey kind of book things are all made according to a 19-step progression that it has to fit into. But it I've tried working with that thing in books, thinking that would give me a, like a skeletal structure to write a good, thrilling book that would be like easy for readers to understand. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't work because you're dealing with a lot of more stuff in books. You need more things happening to, right. to fill out a 300-page book than you do in a 90-minute film.
1: We sometimes forget the the level of structural um structural complexity that shows up in fiction, even in relatively short fiction. Like thinking about any given um script for like a film is ninety to a hundred ish pages. And that's of script pages. Look at the density of words on that page. And obviously there's a lot that's filled in by by the uh, the visual component, not not the short triff that that's a formal necessity film in all ways. But that's not gonna be necessarily picked up by every single writer. You compare um, the writing that goes into a script uh, versus the writing that goes into a novel. And it's just like what Gareth was saying, the amount of words that you're thinking about for that kind of script is roughly equivalent to like a longer short story, um, which actually leads to why a lot of early films and and a a lot of films now even are more adaptations of short stories or intense truncations novels
0: right short stories make phenomenal movies novels are really re- good novels are really hard to adapt without cutting out
1: tons it's it's why we eventually developed that that notion of like the prestige television event uh of like a 10 episode thing or a 6 episode 12 episode where each is an hour long because that's the only way that you can get the the level of structural and temporal complexity that a novel would over the course of the, the density of 200, 300 pages, 400, 500. Years.
2: People talk right. about the, the Sopranos and The Wire being like novels on television. And the only way in which that was true is they were long. They were both uh, five or six seasons. <laughs> and you had um, enough right. in there to equal one 300-page book.
0: And aside from length and just number of words, one huge difference between these mediums is that fiction deals with the invisible. In a way that film can't. Film is audio and visual, and that's all. And it can do way more with visuals and way more with audio than fiction can. Fiction, it's words on a page, it doesn't make sounds. Audio is a bit of a weakness of it. You can't really describe music very well on that. But a novel or a short story can deal with this internal, this invisible side to existence in a way that is, I, I'm don't think it's totally impossible to do with a movie, but it's a hell of a lot harder. And when you see fiction written by people who only watch TV, movies, video games, there's a lack of this invisible side. There's a lack of this internal. It's all external. It's all audiovisual. And it feels, as a result, very shallow and and very empty.
1: We think about any great book, and the thing that defines it isn't necessarily these... um, flashes of of action or even the fact that a room is described that's not the thing that's necessarily that's not to say that there isn't great action in writing because especially in something like genre be it um a thriller right. or like a, a sci-fi novel or fantasy novel things like that the, the action is part what you're there for but the thing that tends to move us in great novel is and great stories in general is precisely that like cavernous sense of internal and evoking this broad connective tissue or at times like disconnected tissue of of the world in a way that is not the phenomena itself of some given event, but is some uh, internal phenomena. I'm tr- I'm trying to avoid using my big philosophy words because I like the big philosophy words, but God damn it they're made for this
0: <laughs> Yeah I, I you can use them if you want. I'm not gonna yeah, so- I'm not going to forbid you from that. So, (laughs) uh,
1: to to dive in briefly, there's an ontological aspect that we derive a lot if you partake a lot of video games, movies, comics, without approaching them a certain way. There's obviously powerful narratives that can be learned from them, and that's uh, along the same notion of having spices to your meal. Like, if you're only reading literary fiction, made like, if you're only reading Gita Mombas, you're not going to make a... An additive work of fiction. It'll feel like it's like, okay, yeah, you you read some creative writing highbrow creative writing rubric, but you haven't made anything of substance that is worth talking about in 2019. Right. But if you predominantly fixate on this other more visual media and you don't know how to dive into it and parse out what you can gain from it, you can make a very ontological text. It's physical objects in a physical space doing physical actions, but nothing inside of that. There's no phenomena to it. There's no emotional affect, emotional resonance. Or if there is, it becomes as plotting and as dead as you writing the resonance the the reader is supposed to feel, which is almost universally taboo. (laughs) Like, if you can't get someone to feel it without telling them that's the thing they're supposed to feel, you need to work uh, on your your craft a little bit. It's not that it's a never thing, because there are times where, like, you create a network of pluralities and you maybe want to like lean it in one direction more than another. But yeah, you know, it's like, Oh, there's big explosions and don't, don't forget that guy's the bad guy. It's like, this, this sucks. Like <laughs> I could just throw action figures at each other and have the exact same thing happen.
0: Absolutely. Um, and another thing I want to stress too about, uh, fiction is a, a thing that keeps people going. There is not necessarily the action, but the author's voice. Like yeah. the, the way the author describes it, this voice of the author or the narrator is so beautiful and amazing. And I think that's part of why often when movies adapt a novel, they keep that narration in there. Because that's really why people fell in love with the story, that it's this author's voice. So that's
2: why there's never been a successful adaptation of um Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Which is like something that pretty much mm. every overachieving British young man has read at some point in his life. And the, the adaptations right. have been universally terrible because the the, mm. the narration in it is lines like nothing can nothing happened. Nothing continued to happen for thirty more seconds. You can't do that <laughs> in in uh visuals, even if you've got Zoe Deschanel there, um, who is nothing continued right. to happen in human form. Um yeah, it's <clears throat> Uh, Douglas Adams' voice is very distinctive to the point where I've seen so many people try and rip it off. And it is entirely Absolutely. why Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy worked as a, as a novel.
1: Yeah, your, your prose is your first weapon as a writer. That's the one thing no one can take from you. And that, that's also the one thing that stays with you of what genre or form you're writing in. So long as you're writing a written work, your prose remains your continuous weapon. And to predicate the value Absolutely. of your work on the things you are writing about and not your writing itself deprives you of even conceiving of that as your first and most fundamental tool. I mean, we think about something like Beloved. The events themselves are moving. There's, I mean, I'm not I'm not going to fucking come on and start talking shit about Toni Morrison. That's, pro- in my opinion, probably <laughs> the greatest living writer right now. But... If you take away the prose from that tremendous avant-garde section where it's coming from the perspective of Beloved, you don't have the book that makes people break down into tears even if they've never had that experience. Like the intense savagery of that moment, or emotional savagery, because what you're witnessing is this like brutal inversion of the life torn away from Slave. Like that, you can't merely... Describe physically in film and in comics and in video games and things like that you still have those moments but they're portrayed differently so for in video games it's more fixation on agency and what you allow someone to actively carry out because that agency is the primary uh and direct resultant action from player input is the direct like artistic medium the fact that there's visual narrative is incidental to the notion of agency in film it's precisely temporally choreograph imagery and sound that you can't get from other media. That's where like, some of the more intense uh, and moving moments of film are these near-silent like, passages of visuals, where it's not necessarily events the events you're fixating on, but like, it's hard to make it not sound cliché to talk about staring at the ocean and being deeply moved, and yet every single person at some point has watched a film with that kind of scene. Uh, or like the recent (laughs) film adaptation of Macbeth from like the 2015, I think it was where there's just this big expanse of Scottish sky and it's brutal. It feels like you're looking at black metal, (laughs) like, but that's not, if you just try to write that down and you don't have any command of prose because you've never read books, you know that this has moved you and you know that it's moving. You're not wrong in looking at these other media that you like and feeling compelled by them but you need to learn how to command that and if you're writing prose you can't command it by simply having felt it when you saw it you need the prose to be able to convey that thing that thing you felt because that's the other thing is like the point of fiction isn't the event that happened it's why should I be reading about this and that's at some point
0: absolutely
1: what we've been talking about that sort of like internal phenomenological gut thing when you're writing prose, you have the ability to dive into in a way that a lot of other media doesn't.
0: Absolutely. And you find that when an aspiring writer doesn't read, you can you can sort of tell, like their stories feel like a TV show, mm. oh, yeah. like a really shallow TV show. It's like, if, if you can read a story and if you could convert a story into a TV script without losing any information, then it doesn't need to be a story at all. Just write a fucking TV script. That's fine. Yeah. That's valid. Maybe you're not meant to be a fiction writer. Maybe you're meant to be a screenwriter. And that is totally fine and valid. But stop writing shitty fiction. <laughs> Instead, read some fiction. And you should read a wide variety of fiction. That means reading fiction that isn't Harry Potter. Once again, I can't stress this enough. Read books that aren't boy wizards. Read read other books so imagine harry potter and now imagine anything but that and
1: now now you're on the track you're on the road
2: yeah if if, if you do need to like wean yourself off harry potter uh read uh, the magician's trilogy by lev grossman because yeah that that's such hmm. a good way to get the harry potter poison out of your system and it's also just a cracking brilliant really fast read just great great trilogy of books and tv show wasn't bad either
1: it feels like as an adult, the magician shouldn't be as good as everyone made it out to be. But then you read it, and you're like, yeah, it's pretty good. Like, it's not it's not going to, like, blow your socks off. But it's you're like, oh, yeah, I was I was imagining this is going to be way more cloying than, uh, than it is. It's actually very well balanced and very smartly written.
2: Yeah, because the guy who wrote it was the New York Times book critic. And he reads an absolute oh, wow. crap ton of books every single day.
1: And he, like, he... He writes outside of genre fiction as well, so he knows quite a bit how to um, tap into those other spaces when he wants.
0: So it probably goes without saying here, um, read fiction that's not written by white dudes. Uh, if you only read fiction written by white dudes, your writing is going to be full of very shallowly written female characters, and you'll have a really narrow understanding of the world. Um, yeah,
1: it's, it's not even... So this is sometimes read as like an inherent geek of literature by by cishet white dudes and as much as it does contain elements of that i think it's better especially if you feel very defensive here especially if you are a cishet white author or prospective author Mm -hmm. it's more important to think of it as you can only bring your experience to bear, and you can expand your experience as much as possible but you need to be aware that there are experiences, and that you don't create rich, compelling tapestries of fiction by only bringing one narrow experience to bear on it, even if these other things are just going to subtly and not be the direct driver. Right.
0: And I'm not going to be ridiculous and say, like, don't read fiction by men. Yes. And don't read fiction by white dudes. It's just that there are other kinds of people that also exist, and they write books, too. So you should read just like by a variety of people. That's a good idea. It's ex- all about expanding your power. Toni Morrison
1: is a black woman and is the best living writer, and not a white man. So that that's already like if you're not reading her, you're fucking up. No <laughs> other way to put it. Just you yeah. got to gotta
2: She's awesome. It's like the best sci-fi writers uh, happen to be women. The inventor of science fiction and horror happens to be a woman.
1: Ursula K. Le Guin is one of the absolute great time we have right now. Nnedi Okorafor, who's absolutely brilliant. Writer CJ Cherry is like again, like a top notch writer.
2: Okay. Um, Kelly Link's short stories are just the most incredible things ever. Oh, yeah, I don't even uh, know where I'd them Chang. in terms of genre, but they're just inc- incredible. Like,
1: yeah, it's 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 this big tapestry. And if you again, li- it's yeah, the same kind of thing as if you limit yourself to just just even the genre that you work within, then all of a sudden you don't have anything else to bring to bear that's like it, it's again it's like i'm gonna cook potatoes i don't want any spices i don't want i'm just gonna boil them and i'm gonna eat them whole and you're like what no why why would you do that you're like whole potato restaurant that's what we are we serve whole potatoes we boil them. <laughs> you eat them whole you're not allowed to cut them <laughs> gotta get the whole potato in your mouth
0: exactly <laughs> right Um, I also want to stress in terms of variety, we've touched on this a little bit, uh, read a variety of genres and not just your one genre. Um, I've known a lot, I I write speculative fiction and I've met a lot of genre writers or aspiring genre writers who only read that genre. Mm. Like aspiring sci-fi writers who only read sci-fi, aspiring fantasy writers who only read fantasy, aspiring young adult fiction writers who only read young adult fiction, and when you do this, you end up writing these really bland, derivative stories full of overused tropes, overdone ideas, generic dialogue, and it, you kind of look like a bad fan fiction author instead of a writer of original mm. fiction. If you only read Tolkien, the stories you write are going to look like shitty Tolkien. Yeah. They're not going to look like something new or special. This is like a particular problem
2: with genre genre writers, I think. And I don't want to single them out. Mm. Or, or or create that whole literary genre dichotomy, which doesn't really work.
0: Like, right, right, because it's yeah, not
2: even I, real. I mean, when I speak to, like, literary writers, they'll always say, like, oh, but I loved Philip K. Dick when I was a kid, or, you "No, know, I used to love the mm-hmm. Conan books or something. But I, I don't get as much as much uh, I love Toni Morrison when I speak to sci-fi
0: writers. Right, right. Like, I've heard a lot of people say that, like, oh, literary people are just snobs who really look down on genre fiction but I've met a lot of literary fiction writers who still enjoy sci-fi and stuff but I've met a lot of published sci-fi authors who like sneer at literary fiction they get really mad at it they're like middle class people talking about their feelings yeah it's like the kind of grumpy outcast kid who like hates the cheerleader but it's because she won't go out with him you know (laughs) It's the, I'm not like other girls, girl. It's that. It's that kind of bitterness, sour grapes shit. And you you really have to fucking grow up if you really want to grow as a creative. It's it's
1: also weirdly comparative to something like the, like the angry feminist who it's like, how many of those have you ever run into? Two. Like if you're on Left Book, you're going to run into more than two, but that's because Left Book is full of 19 year olds, not, not adults. But, or like the angry vegan. It's like, I have met one maybe in my life and yet we hear about these figures oh right yeah i was reading i was reading this sci-fi book and some person slapped it out of my hand and went they they're not they're not a nobel literature prize winner you fuck like no one no one actually does that that's like what you ran into like one or two professors who maybe were like yeah i i don't teach you do run into that sometimes in that kind of environment. like yeah i don't teach genres. you can't bring you can't bring any kind of genre into my and you're like, genre? Like what like buildings were mom That's a genre, you you dumbass. Um aside from those environments, we don't see we don't see that nearly as often as it as you would guess from certain very touching um genre writers, which is, which is especially strange when you consider that like anyone that we consider truly great in that space will all cite this very broad history of genres, where they're reading Literary fiction, they're reading contemporary nonfiction, reading biographies of political figures, and then of bands. They're reading uh, like they're reading comics and like scripts of TV shows. Like becoming these massive, uh, like deeply carnivorous figures, just consuming as much as they can.
2: Yeah, you see that in um, uh, Alan Moore's League of Gentlemen uh, books, where you realize just the amount of stuff this guy has, has seen and knows about and it it could be anything from like great works of fiction to uh children's TV shows that aired at like 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning on the BBC in 1987.
1: You get a hyper blast of it if you if you read Jerusalem by him. The book that I don't think anyone has oh, finished. Yeah. It's brilliant.
2: It's a and I I, fin- I finished an audiobook version of it <laughs> while at the G- How long were you um, listening to that audiobook? Um oh it was about 80 hours. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's about good chunk of a year and it took up like most of the space on my ipod and i was like at the gym like lifting and listening to a a thousand page book and i had achieved total chad them (laughs) and i merged the both the virgin and chad (laughs) sides of myself into an alchemical hermaphrodite and achieved full consciousness of the universe
1: Uh, just as alan moore would want that's good beautiful we so there's, um, there's, a, there's a drummer. He has, he has a quote that uh, he borrowed it from someone else. I just don't know who. But it's, if you want to sound like someone, don't listen to their stuff. Listen to the stuff they listen to. Um, the notion of that is more that Ooh. you will always produce a syncretic copy of the things you expose yourself to. That's just how the human brain works. There's no fancy way to get around that. If you only expose yourself to the stuff that you like, you're going to be making a syncretic derivative copy of that. And if you do that enough times, it's like making a photocopy of a photocopy. You can tell. That's how you get the Rob Liefeld, where he knows comic books really well in a way that's sometimes very unfortunate and difficult to admit. But he knows, he copies out and lifts up this element that maybe to most people is intensely monstrous and not what we're there for. (laughs) Um, Likewise, like tolkien wasn't reading a bunch of tolkien when he wrote his stuff right like fantasy as we know it did start in the 1800s but there wasn't a huge amount there was there was like maybe a dozen books two dozen maybe um so he had to read other things like famously coming from the realm sticks and anthropology and likewise like isaac asimov and uh arthur c Clarke when they were very young pulp writers helping to found how we view science fiction now, it's not like they had the body of science fiction literature to draw on. There, there was science fiction stuff at some point. Like, Arthur C. Clarke contributed to the real scientific to make geostationary satellites. That's because, and Arthur C., uh, Isaac Asimov, I think was a wow, biochemist? Something like that? Um, like, they were involved in the realm hmm. of science and syncretizing that into the fiction they were reading. So, like, literally anyone you've ever looked up to as a writer, literally any of them has done them. And it does you a disservice to not treat yourself the same way that you need to have. Like, if I want to make, like, what are the ingredients that go into the thing that I love? And how can I learn to take those in?
0: Yeah, I'm going to read H.P. Lovecraft and write a bunch of stories that use the word squamous a bunch of times. <laughs>
1: I also love how "squamous" doesn't mean what you think it does. Looking at it, you think it would mean like slimy or tentacle. No, it's it's like scaled. And yet, and yet, no one uses it that way. No hmm. one use. It technically, you could use it to describe a regular reptile, and no one's like, "Yeah, what an awfully squamous lizard." No, no one says that. Huh. It's great. I love the the trick of that word. Because <laughs> it reveals that other thing of people who, again, there's nothing wrong from picking words up contextually and knowing them more in their environment than from having them up. But for the love of God, if you're writing a book and you don't know what the words you're using mean, that's troubling. Like, you're a wordsmith and you don't know what they mean. That's That right. should be alarming to you.
0: Right. Or so-and-so used this word, so I guess I'll use it. Every fantasy novel I've ever read uses the word chitinous when they're talking about a bug monster, so I guess I should use the word chitinous a whole bunch.
1: And it's one of those other things where if you know what these gestures are referring to, you can begin to describe the gesture rather than just aping the gesture. Because there's a reason that Lovecraft is as influential as And thankfully, it's not the racism, although for some people it is the racism. Um, that part's bad. Um, Just to make it explicit, in case you're on the fence about that, the racism is the bad part of Lovecraft, but um, the uh, intense, the the surreality and psychedelia of that kind of remarkable density of high language, where people are like, oh, it's badly written because it's hard to read, and it's like, well, no, Mm. it's supposed to reflect the madness of the person writing it. Like that's where we sometimes get some very bad analytics right. of Lovecraft. Like he's not trying to make it approachable because if it's breezy and approachable, it doesn't sound like someone driven to madness is chronicling something. The affect doesn't fit the content, and that became deeply compelling for a ton of people, like a ton of people, like in like a fuck ton of people. But. We also know where that trick comes from like it belongs to him so much that you can't he's he's one of those tricky writers where even if you try to do a very subtle injection people can immediately call it out it's way too singular like you can't even oh, lightly yeah. dose something with something Lovecraftian and without someone going yeah he's read some lovecraft uh, <laughs> like philip k dick is another one like undeniably brilliant no one who writes genre stuff or even like genre stuff would ever say that philip k dick is like a bad author that you shouldn't read but also it's it's such a particular blend that you can't do it and not have someone know
2: oh totally or a uh, kafka that's another one that's right writing kafka-esque stuff things like black mirror or borrow, uh, borrow heavily from kafka and yeah. and you can tell right off. weirdly the
1: Borges, while being the same uh everyone's Absolutely. chill with and that's just because we love that guy No other reason. Mm -hmm. It's also super noticeable, but you're like, yeah, the circular ruins was a good story. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So... Let's stress for for genre readers, you should definitely read some literary fiction, learn what influenced the writers that you love. So why don't we recommend some literary fiction that's genre reader friendly, uh, literary fiction that maybe has a really engaging plot or kind of genre themes? Like we've mentioned Toni Morrison. I mean, Beloved is a ghost story. And we've mentioned Kafka. Um, So who are some other recommendations of literary writers for genre readers?
1: Uh, the historian is the first one that i leap to it's a book about dracula like it that shit is baller like no other language can do dracula is the coolest literary care uh but it's this brilliant literary novel about the um the dappling influence of both the past and chronicles of the past. And how contradictory chronicles shape the future also dracula's in it like it does all these cool stuff and dracula's in (laughs) nice it's great
0: that sounds pretty good so i would recommend the works of margaret atwood too don't just watch the handmaid's tale tv show like try reading the book book's really fucking good and her short stories are also awesome
1: the matt adam trilogy is intensely good she is weirdly not good at writing anyone who isn't white so you'll pick that one up pretty quick (laughs) yeah (laughs) pretty very bad at it but um, yeah, her, her stab at um, biopunk and uh, ecological uh, apocalyptic writing is tremendous. Also intensely terrifying. Um, mm-hmm. Mainly because I'm scared of climate death. But
2: Yeah. So another really, really good obvious one is Cormac McCarthy. Ooh. Because he's done a, a genre book. The Road is a post-apocalyptic sci-fi book. He, and But his other stuff, like like, I really wish more fantasy writers would read Blood Meridian, mm. especially dark fantasy writers. Like if you if you write in something that's like Warhammery kind of dark fantasy, then if you read Blood Meridian, it'll give you that like extra juice to just make it as nasty as possible without being uh, well, without doing the obvious things that dark fantasy writers do, which is just throw a lot of rape at it. And now it's dark fantasy.
1: <laughs> There's nothing obviously wrong with writing tremendously work fortunately and if you've ever been writing classroom you know the guy that i'm talking about it's almost always a guy who's writing dark dark stuff but it's just an excuse to put a bunch of gross shit on the page and that ignores mm-hmm. like splatterpunk has punk in the name for a reason it's it's punching up at something and using the confrontational aspect of intense violence to make certain audiences confront things and likewise, Cormac McCarthy with Blood Meridian is using an intensely brutal story. But at no point are you reading it going, oh, the people carrying out a native genocide are the good guys. Or mm. like, like, you know what you're reading is wrong. And that's part that gets subtracted out from people who become a bit too gore obsessed to the point where they lose those prosaic touches where it's not dark just to have bad things happen. It's dark when it's a witnessing of evil, and witnessing of evil means at some point you offer that kind of a slight lensing. If you're talking about horror, those little touches are what makes something go from the the goofiness that, say, like a monster or something can have, or the goofiness of, like, a witch, which, you know, controversial point, aren't real, Um, (laughs) and elevates that into like the the realm of terror because right. like being scared of a doll is goofy but no one likes haunted dolls no one they're uh, they're always creepy <laughs> they are super creepy like are ghosts real don't think so are haunted dolls real 100 100 percent i've seen them they got those dead porcelain eyes but yeah it takes those subtle sensitive elements of uh lensing to hit that
0: let's see well this one i don't know if you'd call it horror but m- maybe it takes a, it's a bit like a thriller but donna tarts the secret history fucking amazing yeah. Yeah. novel holy shit
1: that's a, that's a good really good book. book yeah
0: and technically it has supernatural elements in it yeah
2: technically i mean like the, the, the slightly pivot point of the plot is people carrying out a dionysian ritual and then dionysus actually turning up at one point right that's like alluded to, it, it's alluded to that the ritual actually worked and they did summon Dionysus and that's why everything goes wrong in these rich people's lives. Right. That's ball. So it could, That's such a baller yeah. book.
0: <laughs> it's great.
2: I think her new one, the Goldfinch, is supposed to be very good as well and that's more of a thriller. Yeah, much more of a thriller. Uh, yeah, I haven't actually read that but it's going to be made into a movie I think yep. or a TV show fairly soon. Um, yeah, that's another good one
1: uh i've been uh, he's on the mind and because we've been talking about him a lot and i've been reading through his uh body of work but Kazuo ishiguro has um mm.
0: uh
1: so never let me go is the most obvious one where uh for anyone who especially happens to be a young adult reader uh there's a similar story called the house of the scorpion um and never let me go is uh a very close parallel to that but you know written by a guy who won a nobel prize for uh for literature uh which it's not the ultimate prize for literature for specific reasons like it the nobel prize requires a utopian bent and it's uh given more to a body of work than for specific works. So there are these other things but you know you also like tony morrison won that award too so like you, you have to <laughs> still be pretty good to get it um he won <laughs> he won the booker prize when it meant that your book was good Ooh. it doesn't anymore which is weird your book can be good and win the booker like um oh another one that's satisfying is a tale for the time being is Mm. this kind of slipstreamy melding of um these slight surreal science fictiony elements with this really intensely painful story interweaving like a, a teenage girl a an over 100 year old Buddhist monk and then a contemporary um a japanese american woman in her i think mid 30s or early 40s hmm. the, the predicate of that one is the teen girl has decided that on some birthday of her she's going to kill herself and so it's then her journal from that point that washed up on the beach presumably having come from japan where the teen girl lived to this woman that's this obvious like psychosomatic melding of the buddhist nun the uh, middle-aged woman and this teen oh it's absolutely tremendous wow that sounds amazing it's a really goddamn good book written by a uh japanese american woman cool so again very cool authors right. that are necessarily white dudes
2: yeah uh, I'm, af- I'm afraid i'm gonna bring up a cishet white dude but he's a good one uh <laughs> david mitchell oh yeah, yeah. um Cloud Atlas was like a massive, massive big one for him. He's also written like haunted house books, he's written fantasy books. He's, I remember reading him when I was like real young, and there's a book called Number Nine Number Nine Dream. Number Nine Dream, yeah. And that was kind of a, a cyberpunky kind of but also very like down to earth and very um very at the core of the emotional life of the character kind of book that was happened to be set in Japan, so it had that kind of, you know, very Cliche cyberpunk kind of feel to it, where I think it was in neon and it's all at night and it's raining. And Cloud Atlas was yeah you know, just all over the place in terms of genres. There was like detective stories in the seventies, and then there was biopunk stories happening in like three thousand years from now. It was yeah just all over the place and just a real like tour de force in terms of like how big you can make a novel.
1: And really also shows that one I think especially shows something that's a powerful lesson for genre writers so sometimes when we imagine um say like even a very big sci-fi or very big fantasy novel it's big but tonally it's the same for the course of its 800 pages and that can be exceptionally tedious unless you're really fucking brilliant uh meanwhile david mitchell gives himself this room to have this insane sweep where there's one of my favorite pet genres that master and commander like Imperial Navy-ass shit. Love that shit.
2: <laughs> Problematic. Uh, well, I mean,
1: I don't like Brit, so... But look... Like, yeah, me neither. That, like, uh... I forget the name of the guy who wrote the Master and Commander books. Like, Horatio Hornblower or some shit. Like, some absolutely goddamn cliche. I'm, a, I'm British and I live on a boat-ass name. Oh. Um, <laughs> uh, another one is almost anything by sheena mieville like Mm. just a writer who's intensely learned when it comes to almost every aspect of genre writing but also has this tremendous literary flair where he's along with david mitchell where they're clearly writing genre work but the writing is simply so good that you get those people that consider themselves above it twisting themselves into knots trying to figure out how they can justify saying this like right you know. it's not sci-fi It's
0: like no it's it sci-fi is my book no it isn't
1: you, d- you just <laughs> you like a sci-fi is. book it's fine like you're allowed to like <laughs> it and like uh, credit to Kazuo Ishiguro for doing that as well when people are like oh you wrote such a brilliant literary book he's like no never let me go as a cyberpunk and they're like what? it's like yeah no it's I mean I read a bunch of sci-fi books and I went yeah I want to write one of these and like his yeah. most recent one has a fucking dragon in it like the buried giant literally has a dragon Um, they Mm -hmm. literally kill a real dragon and people are like i'm not sure if that's fantasy i mean it's just one dragon (laughs) casting real magic
0: (laughs) well let's flip that around then we've talked about literary fiction for genre readers let's talk about some genre fiction that literary snobs might want to try to read because There are those literary snobs who kind of look down on genre stuff, but there's a lot to learn from genre fiction, too. Like, getting reading a really fun page-turner is good. And it's not all low-effort garbage. There's some really beautifully written genre fiction. Um, We've touched on Ursula Le Guin before, but Jesus Christ, she's she's amazing. Um, She's just such a fucking great writer. And let's be real, a lot of literary fiction is just kind of gentrified genre fiction anyway. You know, it's like a lot of- a lot of high, snobby, artisanal restaurants are like, we put lobster in our mac and cheese. Like, okay, but it's mac and cheese. This is- this is comfort food. You've just gentrified (laughs) mac and cheese. Well- You put- you put lobster in, but you didn't put- you didn't put pepper in. You put lobster, (laughs) but no- but no pepper. (laughs) Like-
2: (laughs) You don't put pepper in mac and cheese. Yes, you do! But, um- Fuck fuck you! you. (laughs) You, right? Um, okay, people, you should read uh, Ian M. Banks. Ian M. Banks. Oh my God! Uh, yes, Ian Ian M. Banks. Nice. Um, Ian Banks, same guy, but he writes. I, I guess you'd call it literary fiction. So it, it's he writes various things. He's written as Ian Banks, a kind of thrillery, or they're they're very they're all very good. Yeah, his uh, culture books are the like the hardest of hard sci-fi in terms of like their scope and the ideas and just like how impossibly far into the future this all happens and like how insanely powerful all the spaceships are and it's just yeah if he wasn't like such a great writer and he is then it would fall apart into just straight up nerd stuff right peter f hamilton kind of thing right but um no he is just a, a brilliant writer and i like what's best about him is he's very highly politically minded when he's writing oh stuff. yeah mm. he he's not like it's not like star trek where oh you realize after 50 episodes oh wait they're actually in a anarchic communist utopia he's like ian m banks knows what he's doing when he writes a a post-scarcity society he knows how they got there right which is through communism nice and um yeah so he's he's a great person to read for knowing how to integrate the hard-ass nerd shit sci-fi with real emotional theft and a political message and an analysis of capital which is you know if you can get all those three things right you've just got a great book That's how you make a great book. Um,
1: Shirley Jackson is probably Hell yeah. one of... I mean, there's a reason why there's a uh, horror award named after. And is considered, at this point, probably a little bit more prestigious than the uh, the Stoker or the Poe. Like, if you win the Shirley Jackson Award, like, people are going to be buzzing around your work. Almost everyone's read The Lottery before. And it's a, it's a story whose brilliance diminishes with how much we pounded into people, but it really is brilliant.
0: Oh, God, yes.
1: The Haunting of Hill House is obviously um, big because of the TV show now, although the book's very... But, like, the gem that every, all Jackson heads uh, really love is We've <laughs> Always Lived in. That's, like, the one. Like, one of the best books I've ever read. Oh, yeah. It, it's a strange take on a haunted house story, but it's still very much a haunted house story. It just would resonate with uh, literary fiction writers because some of the things that haunt the house are the very living people who still live in the house extending that notion of haunting into those literary realms of spaces where our presence has affected sort of the psychic air of an atmosphere.
0: Uh, I'd recommend for sci-fi short stories, Ted Chang. He is wonderful. His short Mm -hmm. stories are wonderful that he can go like full on hard sci-fi. And I'm amazed by the depth and breadth of his understanding about just these very, very specific topics. He's written a sci-fi story that is based on 17th century science fiction. So it's all about, like, homunculi. And it's it's absolutely... Oh, we love some homunculi. It's amazing. It's so strange and, and weird and slightly gross because of, you know, homunculi come from sperm. Um, <laughs> he's, he's, and his fiction is absolutely just beautifully written, and he's gotten published in... Sci-fi genre and literary publications. Um, and that's not easy to do. Same with Abby May Otis. Uh, she's kind of an emerging writer now, I think. Her, she's got a short story collection out called Alien Love Virus Disaster. It's really fucking good. It's amazing. There are these really gritty, down-to-earth, funny, witty, heartbreaking sci-fi stories that are just fantastic.
1: Um, I, I rep... These two pretty constantly, um, but Melmoth the Wanderer is by far my favorite Gothic novel. Just, and it's absolutely insane. And at times the prose has that numinous level of. I, this is the other thing. Literary writers like to turn, thumb their nose at the purple prose of a uh, certain Gothic or horror writer But Jesus Christ, I've read Bruce. Okay? I know, I know you oh, guys yeah. got that purple prose bug in you, too. Sometimes we like a long-ass, florid fucking sentence. That's fine. That's part of the fun. Like, if you can't find that fun ever, you're a stick in the mud. You probably hate books. Um, <laughs> and Melmoth the Wanderer has absolutely insane prose. Like, you legit are like, I think this guy's having a breakdown. Another one that... This is gonna maybe sound weird to count as a genre thing, but... Uh, Lachance du Maldoror it's so it's a French book written uh it's like a poetic novel um written by the uh, Comte de L'Entremont uh totally anonymously is the only work that was published it's the most black metal book that exists mm. and it's written in this uh it's it's somewhere of like if Lord Byron had rewritten Assad's work in terms of just, like, wow. satanic misanthropy, um, but with that same, like, intense romantic um, surreal and psychedelic prose that or that would become deeply influential on surrealist psychedelic ar- uh, artists, rather, like proto-psychedelia. Like, you can't read it and not get that vibe of, like, gothic and horror fiction just, like, bursting off of the page, but it also is so searingly prosaically powerful that like if you like literary if you like the notion of a well-written sentence evoking something it's hard to read it and not have some shit get evoked
0: Mm, absolutely um I, i well i think let's move on from from that right and talk about uh our next point too is which just for for time um Read old shit, too. <laughs> Don't just read contemporary literature. And we've touched on this a little bit, but um, read old, 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 old shit, like older than 100 years old, like the classics. And this is where previously we probably were g- are going to be accused of being too anti-white male. Now we're being too pro-white male because it's all old stuff by dead white men. Um Though granted, they were dead white men who were really fucking good at writing, and you know, a lot of the classics weren't written by white men either. Like Jane Austen was only one of those.
1: (laughs) We can bear in mind some of the the oppressive axes that lead to the canon not including uh, people who aren't white men, largely coming around with who was allowed to write and whose work was allowed to be preserved. But it's not necessarily a value judgment of non-white men's writing, even of that time period, but the people then didn't value it enough to keep a lot of it around so like we know of victorian writers who were women writing these and even regent writers who weren't jane austen or the bronte sisters but Mm -hmm. you know whose work just didn't get saved which sucks and is bad but (laughs) yeah Um, but I
0: mean, these were still people who were fucking amazing at writing, and yeah. guess and and honestly, a lot of classics were some classics weren't written by by white guys. Uh, Alexandre high. Dumas, as I recall, was a mixed race, and his father kind of cucked Napoleon Bonaparte in Egypt, so that's oh, pretty cool. Yeah. Um, mm. Seichonagon, oh. uh, author of the first novel in human history, or at least it's called the first novel in human history, the Pillow Book. Japanese woman, Cao Chin I'm probably mispronouncing that, wrote uh, Dream of the Red Chamber. It's a Chinese novel that I think is like a thousand years old. And yeah. it's really weird. It feels weirdly postmodern when you read it today. It's so strange. You're thinking, this is going to feel stodgy and old, but it doesn't.
1: All five of the four great Chinese historical novels, That, that it's a weird thing. There are, there is, And everyone only says the four great Chinese historical novels, which is the name of that. But there's three that everyone agrees on, and then two that swap spots. And you only ever talk Mm. about four at a time, but there's five total. Um, Weird thing, it's worth looking up. Uh, Dream of the Red Chamber is one. I have another one that uh, Gareth is probably printing on, because he knows what's about to happen. Uh, (laughs) That's right, Romance of the Three Kingdoms, baby. The shit's Mm. the best action narrative (laughs) you can ever read. I love Guan Yu. I love him. He's my hero.
2: Yeah. I love Guan Yu.
1: (laughs) But yeah, it's still, um, if you're thinking about even writing an action narrative, this is, it was completed in 300 AD. Okay, so it's actually 1700 years old. I don't want to do the crass comparison to Game of Thrones, but basically that notion of the moving pieces on a chessboard. There's a reason why this is the most popular tale in China.
2: Oh, wow. I know it's kind of a cliche, but let's not forget the great Greek and Roman oh, yeah. authors. You should always have read the Odyssey. Yeah, And you know, just familiarize yourself with that narrative because it is really good. Yeah, it's great. And it does a similar kind of Game of thrones kind of thing with, you know, tons of different characters. You are keeping your head at all times. Huge battles, right. courtroom intrigue, and so if on. If you're
0: a fantasy writer and, and you're not reading Homer, you're not reading Beowulf, you're not reading Gilgamesh... What the fuck are you even doing? <laughs> Come on.
1: If you don't love myths and things derived from myths and folktales too, it's like, no, you actually don't like fantasy. You you <laughs> tricked yourself. You don't like it at all. Another one is okay. like the Orlando Furioso um, tales, which even stretch up to like Virginia Woolf's Orlando, which feels... Mm, really oh yeah. Good. And it, feel, it feels very apt. As a rejoinder to this very old, uh, multi already multi-author body of work even prior to her, Don Quixote is a substantially more emotionally savage book than uh, mm. you reading about the windmill scene in 10th grade English could possibly prepare you for. There's a reason why okay. Dostoevsky, another great one, like, you should read Dostoevsky, just period. Um, <laughs> that. There's a reason why he considered it his favorite.
2: Probably, you know, if you got time, maybe go into war, war and Peace. Faulkner,
1: that's a good one. Faulkner's actually as good as everyone says, which is weird. You think that that can't be true, but it is. Also, controversial,
2: Hemingway was a big
1: fuckass, ass but his books were really good. You just have to learn that when he writes about a woman, he hates them.
2: And, of course, we're all forgetting the big one, Ulysses. You have to have read Ulysses at some point.
1: Oh, God, yes.
2: Or mean to do it's it at some point, yeah.
1: Like, we can talk about the, the cliché of James Joyce being the greatest writer of all time, but also he is. Um, if you can... Yeah, it is,
2: it is straight up the truth that that is actually the best book. And you,
1: you go through Finnegan's Wake, and you're like, I'm I, this feels like nonsense. The reason why it's held in such a high regard is it feels like the outer limit for how dense you can possibly make something. Where it's it's not meant to be the same kind of book that you pick up and read and and enjoy. Like that's not the qual what makes it its own kind of greatness. But instead, the like if we think of literacy as depth or, or literary quality as depth, it's like what's the literally deepest thing I could make? Um, to the point where it's not even fun. <laughs> like it's too deep for you to like it, and you're like, okay, wow. I don't want anything to be this deep. I'm not smart enough okay humbling um <laughs> but then on top of that you have next to it his work in Dubliners which is some of the most tremendously breezy and uh, emotive short stories you'd find Unlike I was riffing before but the Guy de Montpassant is like the standard for short fiction writing for a reason mm. like he's the guy who basically invented what we consider the modern form of short fiction like and codified it And you read his work, and you're like, fuck, I could literally see reading this, like, now. And it would be, like, a kitschy throwback in terms of uh, setting, but in terms of how the prose develops and how the plot develops and how characters move and are evoked, it feels tremendously modern.
0: Hi, folks. This discussion went on a ridiculously long time, so we're splitting it into two episodes. Join us next time when we talk to the Death Sentence guys about poetry, foreign languages, Nonfiction, and other things you can read that aren't Harry Potter. Thank you for listening. This has been
1: Write Good with R.S. Benedict, hosted by R.S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. This has been a Kitty Sneezes production. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittysneezes.com. That's R I T E G U D at kittysneezes.com. If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood.
0: KittySneezes.com In Color